From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we talked to musician, producer, and record label president Don Was. I'm just attracted to artists who have a vision but maybe don't actually know how to accomplish it and to help them realize what's in their head. Plus, we review new music from indie rocker Super Chunk and rapper Dessa. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later on, Jim, we are going to talk in depth with Don Was about his career as a producer and uh, record label president. But first, we've got some new music to review. That is a little bit of Super Chunk, What a Time to Be Alive, the title track of album number 11 from a band that pretty much defines indie rock for the last couple of decades, Greg. Super Chunk came together in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina in 1989 around singer-guitarist Mac McCon and bassist Laura Balance. When I say defined uh, indie rock, for an entire generation, they are, of course, also the duo behind Merge Records, one of the most important indie labels of, uh, of the last 30 years, really, staying resolutely independent that entire time. This 11th album is different in many ways from the Superchunk catalog. Uh, It is political for the first time, really, for this pop punk power pop, however you want to define them, indie rock band. Uh, They are talking about the Trumpian moment. We're going to dive in uh, and give our reviews in a second. They are working with uh, Jim O'Rourke, renowned indie rock producers, worked with uh, Wilco and Sonic Youth. Let's play a song and then we'll give our opinions. This is a song called Reagan Youth. It is uh, referring to a hardcore punk band of the 80s, but also much more. Super Chunk on Sound Opinions.
That is Reagan Youth from the new Super Chunk album, What a Time to Be Alive. Uh, Jim, this band was so ubiquitous in the 90s with their tours and their albums. It seems, though, when they put a record out, um, there's a real purpose behind They've it. They've got something to say. Um, you know, a few years ago, their previous record, I Hate Music, uh, had a similar kind of tone. You know, you, you're, you're at midlife. You're questioning music's purpose amid these demoralizing grown-up realities. It was a, it was a more contemplative album by Superchunk standards. Yeah. I think uh, What a Time to Be Alive is basically addressing the same kind of issues. What is music's role at this demoralizing time in our lives? And uh, instead of being contemplative, it just roars. It, uh, it, it, it is coming out of the box in a feisty mood, to say mm-hmm. the least. I've never heard Mac McCon so worked up. I mean, he's, he's literally saying, fight me. Yeah. Uh, because I'm so riled up about this stuff. Um, five of the 11 songs are under three minutes. It's a classic punk rock record. I think they're returning the favor to a lot of the bands like Reagan Youth, uh, who inspired them when they were kids growing up in the 80s, which was a very demoralizing time for young people in this country. A nuclear war seemed on the horizon. It the potential not, of a draft was on the horizon. It was not morning in America for everybody. And I think uh, they were inspired by the bands they heard then, like Reagan Youth. It's interesting in that song, uh, you know, it, it acknowledges not only the role that that band played in, in encouraging people that they can get through this. It also acknowledged the presence of that conservative political organization. Let me tell you the truth. There with, was more than one yeah, Reagan yeah. youth. Yeah. And which in many ways is, as you know, that those Reagan youths have grown up to become the America that we know today, or at least the, the pe- pe- people who are running America yep. today. Uh, you know, some people have said, oh, it's like preaching to the choir, you know. But I, some of the responses I heard to that were, well, the preacher needs the choir, and the choir needs that preacher. Uh, I think the album ends on a, on a very appropriate thread. It's the longest song on the record. It's anthemic uh, black thread, cut the black thread. And it's basically saying, we can get through this. We, there is light at the end of this tunnel. And it's It's a really powerful uh, record. I, I tell you, I needed this record when it came out. The day it, uh, I, I listened to it was one of those days where you're just going, everything's wrong. Yeah. It was a powerful antidote to all that. I'm, I'm giving it a buy it. I, I will second a very enthusiastic buy it, Greg. It's, uh, it's one of the best Super Chunk has ever given us. I think that uh, Reagan Youth does a couple of things, and it uh, uh, epitomizes the album. It's also, you know, Mac McCorn is asking, uh, you know, did, did, did we accomplish anything? 50 sweaty teenagers yeah. in a room, pogoing, slam dancing to a hardcore punk band. Does that accomplish anything? Well, you know, in times of such uh, huge crises politically in America, uh, if we want to talk about global warming and our planet dying, um, you know, what can you do? Well, one thing you can do is is get motivated, and and sometimes that's jumping up and down and sweating and singing along. Uh, The melodies on this album, uh, you know, even in a song like Break the Glass, Mm -hmm. which is urging you to put your head or your fist or the hammer, they're (laughs) talking about, through the window. Don't open the window. Put your head through it. You know, uh, that is the start of a response. 
we're living at this time uh, where, where teenagers are gathering to fight uh, the, this cavalier attitude in America toward guns. You need a song. Uh, songs are the motivation, and and this is an album of motivating songs. It's 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 just a great listen, beginning to end. I've put my time in now. I'm vetted, uncontested. See how honest answer shuts down. I'm asking trick questions. I'm out here, arms wide, hiding nothing. I've done it all in broad daylight, and I let the cameras run it. That is a track called Five Out of Six from the new Dessa album called Chime. A uh, Minneapolis artist uh, named Margaret Wander uh, studied philosophy at the University of Minnesota and came up, came up uh, as a writer and a poet, got into the poetry slam scene. That morphed into the hip-hop scene in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, she was soon signed uh, to that uh, very well-respected uh, hip-hop label, Doomtree, uh, out of Minneapolis and has collaborated with numerous artists on that label. Uh, she was also handpicked by the the Hamilton team uh, to be part of that yeah. very successful mixtape that uh, that came out about a year ago. At the same time, she's put out four studio albums. Chime is her fourth. And she takes her time between records, um, and, and with good reason. She's a thinker. Uh, she admits freely to, you know, seeing um, uh, philosophy uh, is just rigorous daydreaming. And, and poems, <laughs> yeah, yeah. poems are sort of an extension of that, and lyrics are just an extension of that as well. Uh, so she's uh, creating this sort of seamless world uh, where she thinks through things before she, she puts them down on tape. Uh, Chime is an example of that. Uh, we're going to play a, a song from it before we review it. It's called Fire Drills from Dessa on Sound Opinions. I've been Wendy, living with the Lost Boys. You spent as a deckhand on the convoy. Moved every night to prove we were something. Got confused if it was from a two that we were running. I've seen Gibraltar. I've seen the Taj Mahal. Soweto, Aya Sophia. Chef Shaolin paints the walls blue. I've played to full rooms. I've played the full two. Burning through the bottoms of a pair of new boots. Cut my hair. Take my dick down. A woman on her own must be from out of town. Funny you don't know the concessions that you're making until you catalog them. And by then they're many. And you're battle hardened. Heat makes liquid of the asphalt. Keepsakes and parking tickets on the dashboard. I'm here to file my report. Is the vixen of the wolf pack. Till patient zero. He can have his rib back. That is Fire Drills by Dessa, uh, the Minneapolis now part-time New York uh, resident rapper. Uh, she is a writer, Greg. She's put out a book. She's a philosopher. She is a force of nature. Uh, I love this record. I think that this is also very much an album for this time. Mm-hmm. If we think about what that title means, Chime, she's inviting us to chime in. 
everybody chime in. Uh, even you, with all your imperfections and your conflicts and your self-doubts, uh, this is an album that is trying to balance self-empowerment with sensitivity. Uh, you know, and I think actually Shrimp, which is 40 seconds long, it's kind of a toss-off, yeah. right? Uh, you know, has some of the best lines here. I've been as bad as a, as good girls get. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always a bridesmaid, never an astronaut. That's a line she laughs in the middle of. Yeah. Always a bridesmaid, never an astronaut. <laughs> Okay. Uh, she she's wondering where she fits in. Someone who loves backpacks more than purses, um, and, and she's questioning all these things, including uh, some very heavy ones. They say there's good grief, mm-hmm. but how can you tell that from the bad? This is an album that is sexy, as well as an album that is angry. It's an album that is sensual, as well as an album that is very eggheady. I mean, find another rapper, please, who can name drop St. Thomas Aquinas, okay? Mm-hmm. It, it is a brilliant, brilliant record. Uh, and, and it takes some time to really appreciate the depths. On the other hand, it's immediately uh, apparent, you know, fire drills, wow, uh, where a couple of weeks after the latest school shooting that starts with a fire drill, mm-hmm. um, I think I hear it. As, as getting ready for something bad to happen, mm-hmm. but also uh, welcoming it because that's part of life, too. It's a very enthusiastic buy it. Yeah, Jim, I think uh, she's a fascinating artist because she doesn't have a category. I mean, she's ostensibly uh, signed to a hip-hop label, but she's doing a lot more than that. She's, she's singing, she's rapping. Uh, the arrangements uh, range all across the map. Uh, Velodrome, I would say, is more like a chamber pop song. It's yeah, got that beautiful yeah. cello arrangement with the piano chords and a distant sandpapery percussion. I don't believe my will's quite free. I'm half machine, at least half steam. Aquinas call on me. How many angels on the head of your pin? Anybody? Uh, there's the straight up hip hop as well. There's uh, there, there's straight up pop melodies on here that you could easily hear on a top forty station. As you said, the content of this record, what she's thinking about, how she's, uh, you know, bringing that uh, philosopher's mind of hers into these lyrics is is fascinating to me as well. Uh, I, I can't go on enough about Fire Drills. I think that is one of the best songs I've heard so far in this young year. And, you know, starting off with that hypnotic sitar riff at the yeah. start. Again, sitar on a hip-hop record. Okay, I'm, I'm down with that. It's a cool sound. It's, it brings you in. This whole idea, like, how do women measure their lives today? And, and she's saying in some ways, getting through a day without incident, without being harassed, without mm-hmm. coming out alive even, mm-hmm. is a win. And she's saying, if that's all there is, we're really living in a screwed up place. We, we need to have a better world than this. And we need to think more of ourselves in that. At the same time, she can laugh at herself and admit to being boy crazy yeah. in what is a very effective, uh, you know, pop song. That That's the balance of it. And, you know, I'm I'm more persuaded by her as a rapper than as a singer. I think, you know, the popular, more melodic vocal melodies inevitably don't separate her from the, the pop singer pack nearly as much as a rapping does. But I think it's a good p- counterbalance, as you say, uh, to the heavier stuff that she does in, in a lot of the, the, the rap-oriented songs. I'm going to give it a buy it, too. I've been a, a fan since the start, and I think she is an artist who is definitely deserving of a wider audience. After a short break, we'll talk with musician, producer, and Blue Note Records chief Don Was. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that's a little bit of the song Spy in the House of Love by Was Not Was, the Detroit band that fused together elements of jazz, funk, pop, rock, you name it. You name a genre, (laughs) it was in there, Greg. This week we're talking with Don Was, co-founder of that band, but so much more. He's also a revered producer, uh, now the head of the Blue Note Records label, probably the most prestigious label in the history of jazz. But he started out in Detroit, in the suburbs, as Don Faginson. Grew up loving local music uh, that included in Detroit the MC5 and the Stooges uh, and uh, even Parliament Funkadelic once George Clinton relocated there. They formed the band Was Not Was 1979, they being Don Was and his partner David Was, uh, a.k.a. David Weiss. As we mentioned, he went on to become a masterful producer, working with the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Bonnie Raitt, Brian Wilson. That list just goes on and on. Yeah, that's right, Jim. And then in you know 2012, I mean, to become the president of Blue Note Records, I mean, talk about legendary labels. I mean, Wayne Shorter, Thelonious Monk, I mean, the jazz greats uh, recorded for this label over the decades. Uh, now he's running that label. So he's, he's really lived the spectrum of the music industry. He's pretty much done about everything you can do in the music industry. Let's welcome performer, writer, producer, and label president Don Was to the show. Don, welcome. Hey, thank you, guys. That's an awful lot of hats to wear, Don. That's a lot of hats. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I got tired just hearing that. Don, what a career in music you've had. You know, I think where we got to begin is give our listeners a sense of of who you are and how you fell in love with music. What what was it for you that got you into what really became your life, music? Well, you know, I, I, I I think you're born with a certain predilection towards it. But if I was looking for a pivotal sociological moment I would I would probably go back to uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan I was 12 years old a lot of musicians my age you know a lot of, a lot of guys born in 1952 mm-hmm. and that's because at 12 years old it just it looked so cool all the girls screaming being in a band dressing in those suits close your eyes and I'll be I was just young enough to think, yeah, maybe I could do that. And if I was any younger, it wouldn't have looked appealing. Any older, I'd have probably been a little more sensible and thought it'd be fun to do that, but perhaps I should back it up with uh, law school. (laughs) (laughs) I really believe that bands are metaphorical for for life kind of you know the way that a band interacts it's not di- it's not that different from uh, a basketball team in fact you know i think that's why that's why sports are so popular you have people interacting cooperating and making great things happen as a result that they couldn't do on their own and i think that's kind of a utopian situation everybody wants to be part of that and i think genetically we're made to be part of a tribe but there's something about a band that it replicates uh, tribal living and, and, a, and a family, really. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, Don, because I was uh, reading an old interview with you where I believe you mentioned that Brian Wilson once described your bass playing as like you play like a guy in a band. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, yes. <laughs> you know, it was, is that a compliment or not? But I think, uh, uh, I, I think he meant it as a compliment. Like you, you, you described this notion of being a team player and, yeah. you know, was that the, the way in? Okay. I want to be part of this gang. I want to be part of this group. Yeah. And, and playing music. There, there's something that happens. It still happens. I got to tour in a band with Jamie Johnson and Warren Haynes and. Michael McDonald and Taj Mahal and Dr. John and a whole bunch of guys, and we did the the last waltz, and right? we mm-hmm. we did that. We played in Chicago, uh, mm-hmm. and it was just the greatest experience to be up there playing those songs every night. In fact, it was so it was really loud on stage, and I thought about playing with these musicians. If I gotta get it ringing in my ears, let it be from this. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was just so happy doing it night after night. I, I, could, I could play those songs and play with those guys uh, forever. I don't want to skip was not was. Because okay. uh, Greg and I are, are huge fans, right? And, yeah, you've and, been very kind over the years. I'm both of you. I appreciate well, it. well, this notion of of you know, you grow up outside of Detroit, Oak Park. You you meet your brother, <laughs> David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> your brother, mm-hmm. brother this, from another planet, right? This idea <laughs> of we are going to put Parliament Funkadelic together with the MC5. I mean, what like like what kind of notion? Who thought this was a good idea? Well, you and David. <laughs> well, you know, if you grew up in Detroit when we did. It's a perfectly natural combination. Uh, we were just really reflecting our roots the same way everybody else does. It was a great time to grow up in Detroit. I had a pivotal moment once when uh, I went downtown to uh, the print shop in the 60s. I was in high school, and Pharaoh Saunders and his band had been performing in town, and they came over to this print shop. <laughs> jamming with the mc5 hmm. wow and it was music that i'd never heard before really i'd never heard again but it really it shaped my whole outlook on it, it certainly reinforced the notion that doing something that hasn't been done before is uh, is a noble pursuit in music. Uh, that that's that's something. It's hard to do. It gets harder and harder to do because so many things have been done. But just to, don't play the same thing that everyone played before. Don't put the same musicians together. Yeah. So we just called Detroit guys who we knew who came in and played on the stuff. And uh, what came out is what came out. But it's very Detroit to me. It's well, yeah, and, pretty and, natural. And the sense of humor there in everything you always did and and that's rare when we were in love i pretended that you didn't exist that way i loved you more you suggested we get married and move into a house i suggested that we jump overboard and live underwater in the lost city of atlantis where mermaids sing and tuxedo dolphins bring you breakfast Rock and roll, as broadly as we define it, is is so much about being cool all the time, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you guys never seem to care about being cool. You, I just think we were who we are, you know. Uh, 
I don't think it's an advantage, by the way, to be funny in rock and roll. I, I'm not sure people go for that. I, I think people want rock and roll to be honest and serious. They, they look to they they look to music in general to help them make sense out of their lives. I'm not sure that being funny. I mean that 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 entertains and that's got value, but I don't know that that that's always paramount goal. It might have I, I been a bad, so, uh, it might have been a bad word choice on my on my no, part. But you're, it, no, it, there was it's a, something you're maybe a joy. Right. A joy more. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you guys were having yeah. fun. We and that fun, was yeah. impossible not, you know, cuz the Stooges didn't project having fun. You know, Clinton no. didn't project having fun, uh, part no. of Funkadelic. Yeah. You know, but but yeah. but was not was was about fun. Yeah, I agree with you. And we had fun on stage there. There were also something, you know, uh one time we played in, uh, in Mobile, Alabama. A cab driver picked me up, made me sit up front. He was he was pretty out of his skull, and he he was going off on uh, racial issues. Like, and I, I just thought, I do not get into it with this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, stay away. <laughs> you know, just get to the airport. Mm-hmm. So finally, he asked what I was doing there, and I said, uh, "We played at the arena tonight. I'm in a band called Was Not Was." And he got really quiet. This is a white guy. Right? Mm-hmm. So he gets really quiet, and then he apologized for all the racial stuff he was talking about to another white guy because mm-hmm. he'd seen our band oh, and yeah. the vision of our. We never had, like dotted the i and had a song, uh, you know, called "You Know Why Can't We All Get Along" or anything. It was just the visual of seeing all these different cats from different backgrounds on stage having fun playing together Mm -hmm. sent a a powerful statement about people getting along we didn't have to sing about it we we embodied it and that was really that guy apologizing to me was Mm. it it validated everything that that we'd done if nothing else ever happened if that was the only thing that happened it was worth doing the band for them when the sun comes down, they hit the streets In the bars, they try to meet some other stranger Ease the pain of living alone Till the driving insane The woodwork squeaks And out come the freaks Yeah, the woodwork squeaks And out come the freaks Woodwork squeaks And out come the freaks The other thing that strikes me about Was Not Was, uh, Don, was that uh, you were kind of bucking a trend where everything had to fit into its slot. I mean, I remember when on the Born to Laugh at Tornadoes album, when that came out, mm-hmm. uh, and I saw Mel Torme and Ozzy Osbourne listed as yeah. vocalists on that record. <laughs> yeah. I go, there is no other band on the yeah. planet that would have yeah. those two guys on the same record. You can't stare into the sun, you can't pretend to have fun. thought it was some kind of cosmic joke and then and I read interviews with you around that time where you were saying no we got Mel Torme on that record because we really like his stuff and mm-hmm. you know then I started listening to him more seriously after that I realized oh that is kind of a cool voice and that is a cool way that they use them but it, it I think what Jim was getting at when when you guys were you know kind of the the, the more fun jokey side of the group was that sort of thing where mm-hmm. you think it's a practical joke or it's, it's mm-hmm. tongue-in-cheek but there's a little more substance to it than maybe is apparent on on, a, on the surface. Well, I'll go with that. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> but what about Mel and Ozzy? I mean, again, the thinking on that had to, you had to know that somebody was going to get a chuckle out of that just looking at the credits. 
Well, and, we got a chuckle out, yeah. of, out of doing it. You know, I think that's, it was such a trip. You know, uh, David was was a freelance uh, jazz critic for the now defunct uh, L.A. Herald Examiner. And he'd written a really great review of Mel Torme at the Hollywood Bowl. And Mel found him, hmm. called him up, and he said, uh, he said, David, he said, Leonard Feather's been hating my music <laughs> for decades. This is the first time my children have been able to read a nice review of their dad hmm. playing in town. He said, then he said the, <laughs> the words that sealed his fate. He said, you got a marker on me, babe. <laughs> <laughs> I owe you. So, I owe you. So, so David called me right up. He said, what do we do? <laughs> so we had that song. It's called Zaz Turn Blue. Zaz had red hair He didn't care He always laughed loud He wasn't proud Just a real easy guy Who wouldn't tell a lie But then one day Zaz turned blue And he got into it. I think he was really trying to be like the successful uncle helping his ne'er-do-well nephews out, <laughs> giving him a break in showbiz, right? Which was incredibly generous, and he, he, he was, in fact, doing that. He found nuance and meaning in that song that, yeah. that we didn't know what was there. And also, we didn't know how he was going to do it. We went to the studio, and we'd certainly never been in a studio with uh, an artist of that magnitude, right? And he had worked something up with his piano player. And wow. if, he, if we didn't like it, I didn't know how we were going to direct him or, or change anything. But that, that's take one. He, he had really worked it up, and they, they put considerable time into it. And it, it, I just I couldn't believe it. It was just a brilliant interpretation. I, I got really choked up at the session. And then afterwards, David and I, we had a boombox, and we were just walking up and down Miami Beach and playing the cassette <laughs> over. And we couldn't believe that it happened. Yeah. That, that our song had come to life like that. Yes, as what were we supposed to do? When we come back, we'll talk to Don Was about his success producing albums for artists such as the Rolling Stones and Bonnie Raitt, and what it's like to go from musician-producer to record label president. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a song called Thing Called Love by Bonnie Raitt from her 1989 album, Nick of Time. This week we're talking to the producer of that record, Don Was. Don uh, was the bassist in the Detroit band Was Not Was, but a lot of people know him for his role as a producer. He's worked with a lot of major artists in his career, including people like Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, the B-52s, plenty more. Uh, but I want to focus on that Bonnie Raitt period in particular because her story is so unique. Uh, she was in a tough time in her career when uh, Don started working with her. 
she had been one of the most revered artists of the 70s, that singer-songwriter era. She was a noted interpreter of songs from the blues and folk vernacular, great guitar player. But she was kind of uh, lost at sea in the 80s for a good part of it. She'd lost her label deal. Uh, now she was looking for her next move. Uh, lo and behold, she records Nick of Time with Don Was. And uh, that wins multiple Grammys, sells millions of copies. Suddenly, Bonnie Wright's back on the map. So I asked Don, what was his approach to working with her at that point in her career? I just loved her from, uh, you know, I, I bought her first album. Somehow I saw, I saw her at, like, the Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival in, in uh, maybe 1969 or something. And uh, I was just knocked out by her. I thought she was one of the best singers I'd ever heard. I loved all her records. always loved her singing. Uh, I think she had gone through a transformation. I, I kind of believed that, uh, you know, a, a kitty cat could have produced that album and it still mm-hmm. would have been great. You know, she was just at that point in her life, she'd sobered up. She'd had to go through that transition where you, you stop trying to drown your emotions and you have to learn to uh, purge them through art. And she'd put together a batch of really incredible songs and they were really honest and all all I really tried to do is make sure the focus stayed on her vocals I didn't have to tell her how to sing and we just sort of maintained a really uh, minimal level of accompaniment so that nothing got in the way the goal on Nick of Time was to make it feel like you'd put the cassette player in the car and you're going for a ride you're driving and Bonnie Raitt's in the passenger seat with you singing into your ear just capturing her you it wouldn't have worked with a, a lesser artist uh, just feel really privileged to you know made four albums with her were, were you surprised at the at the success of that record though it sounds like it was a very oh, modest yeah. intentions and it just it just went through the roof all we wanted to do was we, we want we wanted to do two things we wanted to make a record we'd be proud of in 20 years and number two we we wanted to make the money back for the record company so mm. they'd let us make another one hmm the A&R guy was a guy named Tim Devine, and he came down one night. He said, you got a tux? I said, no, I don't have a tux. <laughs> he said, because you're going to need one for the Grammys. And I almost punched him. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I thought, man, don't don't come down here with a bunch of hyperbole. If you like the record, say you, you dug it, you know, but mm-hmm. don't give me that. There's no way we saw that coming. Uh, but in retrospect, you, you could see that, that the mood of the culture had shifted it, it was we we're just coming out of the era of flock of seagulls and human league and all this electronic stuff and it was time for something organic uh, but it does happen we're also talking about a woman who was in mid-career she was around mm-hmm. what late 30s 40s somewhere in that range mm-hmm. closing in on 40, not yeah. not a uh, a typical pop star and yet there it was. I, I think people forget about the significance of that moment because I think it, it, it did a couple of things that people didn't think were possible at the time. And I think it opened up the door for a wave of female artists uh, mm-hmm. to, to resonate on the charts. Uh, a short live moment, perhaps, but a moment nonetheless that maybe we need to revisit a little more often. Yeah, I think it was also uh, the recognition that 
there's an that everything isn't about teenagers and music and that it was okay to sing about turning 40. Nick of Time is a bra- was a pretty brave song for a rock and roll artist to make. Uh, mm-hmm. But it but she understood that there were a whole lot of people her age who were listening to, to, to music and then could no longer relate to teenage sensibilities. And we're going through, I think she just touched a, a really common nerve, but it took a lot of courage to be willing to do that and then I see my folks talk to so many great producers they always have the best stories have you got a philosophy because we look at your production discography you know and the b-52s and willie nelson you know dylan and paula abdul you know it's like i mean nobody i think yours is is singular in its diversity so do you approach projects in a particular way or do you have a general philosophy I have a general philosophy that genres don't, they're, they're good for organizing record stores, if you can find a record store. It's, but musicians don't really think about your genre. You, you, if I'm playing bass, I don't think, all right, I'm going to play some an R&B lick right here, and then I'm going to switch it up to jazz and <laughs> four bars. For, you, know, you just, you yeah, just yeah, play. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. conversation. Whatever comes out of your head, which is whatever you've absorbed, kind of, you just... It just bursts out of you, and you don't really think about that. So to me, there are two kinds of music. There's generous music and selfish music. And selfish music is some guy standing up there playing a a thousand notes a second, and and basically all he's saying is, look at what I can do. And it's kind of like watching an acrobat. You can go, wow, that's that's quite an accomplishment. You you must have practiced a lot, but it doesn't doesn't impact your life or you know you can mm-hmm. appreciate the skill but it's not touching you inside and generous music is what we talked about a moment ago where an artist digs deep inside and and spills their guts musically and offers that up which is a hard thing to do by the way it's not easy to dig inside and find something real to talk about and then to share that with strangers and that, but the strangers pick up on it, and it makes their lives better. So I think that transcends any kind of musical style or genre or, or certain whatever scales you're playing or modes your voice and the chords in. So I'm just attracted to artists who have a vision about how to go about doing that, um, but maybe don't actually know how to accomplish it, and to help them uh, realize what's in their head. So that really, it doesn't matter if it's Mel Torme or Ozzy Osbourne, you know. Uh, they both have something to say. They both have a way they want to say it. And the actual methodology of expressing yourself uh, is fairly common uh, for all musicians. It's just, I, I've been lucky to work with really great, expressive, soulful artists. And that's kind of what I look for. So I take a little bad with the good It ain't just black 
There have been a lot of veteran artists that you've worked with, and I think you got a lot of credit, uh, justifiably so, for helping them find who they really were, or what their true voice was, and making a record that sort of represented that in a way after a lot of people had written them off. And Bonnie Raitt's a, a great example. Uh, the mm. B-52s. Mm-hmm. I would even say Iggy Pop. Uh, the Brick by Brick record was came at a time mm. when, you know, that, that sort of Bowie halo that had been cast around him for a number of years sort of faded and he was Mm -hmm. kind of wandering in the wilderness a little bit too um Mm -hmm. do you sort of sense that these artists already know that's an issue and are just looking for somebody to be a conduit or do they come to you for guidance on these sort of things is there any psychological therapy involved in what you're doing as well as you know being an engineer and, and recording a good studio record yeah i think i think uh the psychology of it is, you know, ninety percent of it. Not, not in the sense that you're trying to trick somebody into doing something or anything, but in understanding where they're coming from. You know, it remi- this reminds me of a conversation I had with John Mayer, who I've done two records with and who I, I really like. He's been he's a good friend. But one night he said to me, he said, "Why is it that a lot of people seem to come to you to do the album?" after the one that's the big hit. <laughs> and I, I looked at him funny. I didn't know if he was, like, uh, picking a fight. Or <laughs> mm, right. I didn't know quite how to take it, but I thought about it, and I thought, all right, well, sometimes you have a big hit. Like, well, it was not I was it. We had a hit with Walk the Dinosaur, which is maybe the least representative <laughs> song that, that, we, that we cut in, uh, in over five albums. But that was the one we were known for. is usually well, how do I get back on track after I, I like the commercial success mm-hmm. <laughs> but where where was I before that interruption yeah and uh, and I, I like to think that that's something that uh, I can bring to the proceedings A guy who has spent many years in interviews saying, generally, I saw record companies as the enemy. Uh, in, in fact, you know, big New York Times profile, you're named president of uh, Blue Note. And you said, yeah, I always thought the record company was the enemy. Now you're yeah. running uh, not only a record company, Don, but Blue mm-hmm. Note, you know, founded in yeah. the late 30s, uh, the uh, yes. cornerstone uh, label in jazz. Well, you know something? It was a real fluke man I, I was in new york making that john the first of the john mayer records born and raised and we had one night off and i looked at the village voice and i saw that a singer that i really dug a guy named gregory porter was playing at a little bar up on the almost in harlem called uh, smoke so i went up there just to listen you know no no business intended i, I drank coffee eight ribs and stayed for all three sets. It was one of the greatest performances I'd seen in my whole life. I found out on my way to Harlem 
Ellington, you don't live around here. He moved away one day, so they say from Harlem. The next morning, by chance, I'm having breakfast with an old buddy of mine who I, I knew as a when he was a drummer in the '90s, and and he ended up marrying my assistant. To, woman who worked for me in the 90s and he'd gone from being Cheryl Crow's drummer to being the president of Capitol Records and we were really just talking about old times it wasn't about music at all but as the breakfast ended I said is, is Blue Note Records still part of Capitol Records because if it is you should sign this guy that I saw last night Gregory Porter he's awesome and what I didn't know was that uh, EMI at the time was thinking of closing down Blue Note Bruce Lundvall who'd run the company so brilliantly for 30 years was retiring he wasn't he was in bad health and no one seemed to have a vision for how to keep the aesthetic intact but moving forward and I walked in with an idea on the day that they were trying to decide whether to close the company so he offered me the job and I, I was like don't even put this temptation in front of me man I don't want to work at a record I didn't want to work anywhere my mm -hmm. goal in life had been to get through it without having a job you know yeah. I never thought about <laughs> producing records or recording or playing bass as being work you know but it was irresistible so I took the gig and I was woefully unprepared for it I didn't know anything about anything about getting organized mm -hmm. <laughs> i walked into capital town it's like a cartoon man they gave me a, the thing of pencils and a phone <laughs> stapler what do i do <laughs> yeah george uh, constanza in the new york yankees <laughs> office right? yeah, yeah yeah it was exactly yeah it was it was comical uh but you you start figured out what to do I, I think it's an asset that I didn't know what to do and that I had to rely on being a musician and, uh, and knowing how to make records you know there's a manifesto uh, that the founders of Blue Note Records wrote in 1939 where they it's a good lefty mm -hmm. <laughs> reading mm -hmm. position statement uh, about really how they're dedicated to the pursuit of authentic music and creating an environment where artists can have uncompromising freedom of expression. Right? So I thought, all right, well, let's just do that. I'm just your food, can't help myself. I love you, babe, and no one is. Oh, crazy, you are my baby. I'm just your food. You've mentioned you signed Gregory Porter, and uh, there's yeah. some other interesting artists, Candace Springs, Jose James, yeah. these are these are artists who are making these kind of genre blurring records that um, mm -hmm. it represent a new generation of, of music that uh, mm -hmm. I think is very much in that blue note tradition you were talking about, Don. And yeah, I, I agree. And yet, still have, having time uh, to uh, produce records on the side. Notably, a record that Jim and I were were if we could do cartwheels, we would have been doing them. Uh, <laughs> the Blue and Lonesome record by the Rolling uh -huh, Stones, because cool. it's like the best Rolling Stones record we've heard, and yeah, uh, I think the record that a lot of Rolling Stones fans were hoping that they would one day get around to making again. Um, what was your take on how they were, uh, how this happened? A classic blues album from the Rolling Stones in 2016. Well, if if we had discussed it ahead of time, it never would have happened. It's certainly something that was always on the on the radar, but distant. 
what happened was we started cutting some new songs and we went into a great studio in London and it just we'd never been in that studio before it took a minute to get used to the headphones and the sound of the room and so just to clear everybody's heads uh Keith said let's do Blue and Lonesome so we did one take of it it's the one that's on the album and it's it was like shockingly great right? yeah. <laughs> mm, mm. and uh so uh thankfully uh Chris Sharma the engineer hit record and uh and everyone knew it was great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we yeah. came in, we played it back, and then it's just, uh, hey, let's do another one. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm blue on all songs as a man can be. And at the end of the first day, we had like six songs. And wow. still no one talked about making a blues album. But we came back the next day and did more blues. And we came back a third day, and Eric Clapton, who was working in the other room and had been ducking in and checking it out, he, he came in and played a couple songs. And then we still we f we finished the time that we had booked, and uh, still no one talked about a blues album. It was kind of like uh, when a guy's pitching a no-hitter. You don't talk to him about it. <laughs> yeah, right jinx it. Yeah. No one mentioned Blues album. And then we waited a couple of months, and then Chris and I went in and did some rough mixes, which pretty much ended up being the mixes that are on the album. That's phenomenal. And, uh, and then just sent it to the guys, and then the discussion began in earnest. So it was a really natural uh, musical outburst well do, do, do that again don <laughs> <laughs> guys why don't we just warm up a little bit and uh, yeah, yeah. see what happens right yeah, yeah. yeah. old uh, producer's trick well it has been a joy talking to don was thank you so much for coming on sound opinions don thank you guys pleasure That wraps up our conversation with musician, producer, and Blue Note label president Don Was. Now we want to hear from you. Do you have an opinion on Don Was's incredible career or anything else in the world of music? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, uh, award season is winding down, and we're going to pick some of our favorite film soundtracks. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banisak, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. Would someone please hang that phone up? Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hey, this is Paul calling from Los Angeles, California. Uh, I'm calling regarding the recent cover songs episode. Uh, one great cover that comes to mind that totally uh, redoes the original and sheds new light on it is St. Etienne's cover of Only Love Can Break Your Heart by Neil Young.
it's kind of a uh, monumental reworking. And maybe the best example I can think of is a, is a cover that sheds entirely new light on the original. Thanks a lot. Enjoy the show. Hey, Jim and Greg, it's Philip from Dallas, and I think the ultimate I Want You Back song is Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Ooh, Baby, Baby, uh, that moment when he says, I'm just about at the end of my rope. I'm just about at the end of my rope, but I can't stop trying. I can't sing like Smokey Robinson, but the sound of desperation in his voice is just palpable. Anyways, uh, love your show. Keep, keep up the good work. She could have been Rosa. What if Eric Garner was just another one? What if I'm wondering what if these what ifs are just waiting for us to wake up? Wake up. Wake up. It gives me a new insight into uh, how I might approach millennials in terms of uh, ministering to them. Before it's too late, we gotta wake up. We can. We can Hey, my name is Katie. I'm calling from Seattle, and I'm loving the show tonight. I I think there's absolutely room for spiritual things in pop music. I think it's vital, and you know, there's a lot of diversity of opinions, particularly around spirituality. But I think anything that puts it out there in an honest way, it's a part of the human experience. I think that's it's awesome that it's happening in music. It's awesome that's something that we can uh, be real about in our art. So yeah, keep up the good work. I'm loving it tonight. Thanks. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.